Before we get started for this week's show, we'd like to thank you all for tuning in with a special shout out to those who support us on Patreon. From just $2 US a month as a patron, you can access extended podcasts and other bonus content. This week, we chat to author Tim Brooks with his new book out, and we catch up with some more news around the emerging cricket world. Welcome once again to another Emerging Cricket Podcast online and on SportFM in Perth. I'm Daniel Bezik and with me are my two co-hosts up in Brisbane, Tim Cutler. Tim, how's things? Not too bad, Daniel. I think uh, my impulse buying on Amazon continues with all this working yes. from home. So I've got all the cable management and trainer socks that any man could ever need for the rest <laughs> of his life. And I actually bought myself a desk today. So that's like, the wonders never cease. Very exciting um, is working from home. How are you, sir? What is it like being back in the workforce again? Oh, no good. All of a sudden, my five-hour days doing emerging cricket have turned into 12-hour days doing a job and then doing emerging cricket. Uh, not great. In terms of looking at Amazon, I've been looking at putters. Uh, spent a weekend away with a few mates of mine up the coast and played a bit of golf over both days and played okay, but I realized that I can't putt. So yeah, I'm looking to uh, improve. So that must be the putter, huh? Mm. Oh, it's definitely the putter's fault. Yeah, 100%. Workman tools, etc., etc. It's about 15 years old. So, you know, technology's gone a long way in sport, let alone in golf. So I'm going to blame the putter and not me. Uh, Nick Skinner, how are you? What have you been up to? Uh, a lot of emerging cricket to watch and imbibe. How's things? imbibing yes um yeah i'm i'm all right got a nice cozy house been roasting some food cup of tea life's good oh you're all set plenty of european cricket going on uh it's gone late into the night here and we have struggled to keep up with it just given that you know the sleeping patterns don't exactly make it easy for us but plenty of cricket to, to go around in europe and a lot of it hasn't actually finished yet so we'll probably talk about most of it actually next week but looking at the czech republic at switzerland uh there was some stuff in denmark cyprus has started as well tajikistan in parts of you know eurasia is starting to open up in terms of cricket we'll, we'll start with the czech republic the rain did threaten at times uh but we did see a result in last weekend's leg of the czech super series we saw the prague spartan vanguards take out their group so they'll make that final weekend uh, a little bit tighter than the week before vanguards winning two group games everyone else one that final game they were pretty comfortable winners over the Prague Cricket Club Knights just great to, to get the tournament on with the rain we know about how Czech cricket and guys like Chris Pierce working feverishly to make sure the grounds are up to scratch not only Scott Pagefield but around the place to get a result there was the most important thing and they managed to do that Nick yeah and as, as we said uh, a couple of weeks ago talking to Chris Pierce uh, it's his first gig as a groundsman here in the Czech Republic so um, he's <laughs> been putting a lot of work into getting everything up to scratch and yeah being able to get most of the tournament on even though it did rain was was a great effort another great team name in a in a competition full of them the prague spartans vanguards hard to go past that and i'm liking this tournament structure more and more as it goes along you know having a mini tournament each weekend and, and having a team progress at the end of each one into the semi-finals i, I think it's fantastic did either of you catch the uh, the Czech Super Series with the crowd noise sledging from the sidelines? They must have had a bit of a Barmy Army type turn up to uh, <laughs> the Czech Republic's own Bay 13 there. It was pretty cool to have that right in the uh, the effects mics. That was uh, good to bring a bit of bit of atmosphere to it all. It's always funny to see at this this level with these 
club teams going at it and the expectation of a crowd of what the catches should be taken and what should be done. And I think the old uh, few old Bronx cheers going out there for the the uh, the high catches going up and the drops. And you think, geez, it's a tough old gig, isn't it? They're all on TV <laughs> or being streamed for the first time ever, and there they are under a under a wet red pill on on long lush wet grass. It's like, oh dearie me. But yeah, like you said, it's it's a good little structure and there's a lot more to talk about. I think uh, as Daniel Weston said on the on our live show, they they've got live cricket every day until December. How amazing is that? Yeah, and as we talked a bit about last week, you know, um, on Free Sports TV in the UK. Having free-to-air cricket in the UK after such a long break is uh, a great step from Western to Switzerland and just a gorgeous-looking ground at, at St. Garland for their leg there. Electronic ad boards around. Daniel Weston was able to pull a few strings through his contacts within European cricket to get that going. I also noticed, too, that they had some teasers and some packages for tourism for Switzerland involving you know one of the cricket teams there and, and the cricket team traveling around and, and showing a part of the country promoting tourism in Switzerland through cricket, which is something that I think we've rarely seen, especially over the last, say, 20 years. I can only really think of the Caribbean Premier League when they have some tourist packages of guys going on day trips to parts of the Caribbean and going around and exploring, you know, beautiful parts of the world. It's something that hasn't really been tapped into yet. And it is definitely something that people should potentially be looking into, Tim, because there's so many revenue streams, income streams that cricket and and cricketing countries in Europe in this instance, but around the world can potentially tap into to as as an extra source of some of this important income yeah it's the first time i've heard of the governmental tourist department getting involved in an associate tournament for quite a while i remember that was one of the biggest hurdles for for hong kong and getting funding for the sixes and then for the blitz and that was getting it to a certain level that it was deemed a a mega event um inverted commas but also their term which would mean a, a lot of money um some of it uh, matched funding with what you had, but also some some grants. So to see this in a non-ICC member country um, having that relationship, whether it's through the ECN and through the other ties that they have with their directors who come from other sporting codes on the board, um, however they've done it, it's very impressive and it just shows what, what can be done with the, the right contacts and yeah, some great videos as well. And like, isn't Switzerland beautiful? And uh, it was great to see them. You know, it's always funny seeing someone try to play cricket on some the top of some mountain or some lookout it's not really the sport for that but uh, it was great to see nonetheless yeah before we move on quick shout out to to cam allen who's one of our patrons here at emerging cricket and you can become a patron too from just two dollars us a month have to give it a a quick plug but he's in switzerland and playing for Conisei Cricket Club in the Switzerland competition and he's also helping out on some commentary too so if you do hear some Australian tones on commentary very likely to be Cam Allen so g'day Cam thank you for being one of our longest patrons and I'm glad to have you as part of the emerging cricket family let's go to Denmark now and while this wasn't a tournament or a competition that's being streamed by the European Cricket Network uh, we saw an outstanding performance by Nikolai Damgaard Legsgaard finishing with 124 not out in a team total of just 149 Nick you brought this to our attention what an outstanding individual performance and and that scorecard's going to look strange but what a moment for well he's a national team player and one of the better players in the emerging game but that is an outstanding performance for anybody yeah it's it's funny you know he, he normally bets um well when I've seen Denmark play, he was batting down at number 10 or 11. And 
Uh, he was actually demoted back down the order to, to number 10 for the second game of the day, which is, I mean, I think that's pretty stiff after you've pumped an unbeaten century. Um, but yeah, you know, chasing down a target of 148, um, his team, Skanderborg, went and uh, won both of their matches to, to top the West Division of the Danish domestic T20. Um, so really impressive. Uh, we, we saw a uh, little interview on Cricket Europe with uh, Jeremy Bray talking about how he's been working very hard on his batting and yes, it's paying off. So it'll be very interesting to see what they do with him in the uh, in the Danish side when international cricket does resume after COVID. Uh, we're also underway in Cyprus as part of the European Cricket Network coverage there. We'll wrap that a little bit more next week when we do have a few more results come in. Finally, boys, a little bit more news to finish up this part of the pod before we do chat to author Tim Brooks. And it comes from Papua New Guinea and they've received another cash injection to mark Olympic Day. Uh, they have a new partnership. The Australian High Commission of Papua New Guinea has a new partnership with the PNG Olympic Committee. And that includes a $250,000 package funded through the Pacific Oz program in a number of sports, which does include cricket, uh, importantly for the sake of this podcast. For PNG, you know, they, they have had financial assistance from Australia and, and New Zealand in the past. Uh, as Australians, you know, we've had people go over over there and help coach Joe Dawes is currently coaching the national team. There is a philanthropic sense of Australia and New Zealand helping out Papua New Guinea. First of all, Tim, it is another great sort of movement and a great a great gesture to, to build the game in Papua New Guinea. But And it's something actually that we do talk to, to Tim Brooks about. Is there a responsibility for some of the bigger boards in international cricket to provide that service to some of the nations coming through? It's a tough one. The easy answer is to say, yes, they should. But they, they shouldn't have to be if the global game is supporting its growth in the, the correct manner. And you don't have to look too far to other sports to see how it can work with an egalitarian funding structure. But this is good to see. We've talked about PNG's funding they received through the legacy funding after the 2015 World Cup, which is going towards local facilities. And this money is going towards the, the Olympic Committee. But um, don't forget in PNG, they're part of the the Pacific Games movement there as well, which has cricket in it. So that is how that money will get through. Um, I get the feeling we're going to see probably more money of this go towards other uh, less well-funded sports, but it's great news nonetheless. I saw Jane Liversey share that. She's now moved on from the ICC and works in the, the Pacific team in the Australian government there and still very passionate about sports growth there throughout the, the region. So no, it's just, it's great to see and just just shows more money that's there to to unlock for for Olympic sports. We're just lucky that uh, cricket is linked to the Olympics in the Pacific. Yeah, Jane Liversey, a uh, good friend of the podcast, had a chat to her uh, in the Philippines during one of the uh, sub-regional tournaments. She has a lot of links to the Pacific and, and she talked about how that was uh, a big priority for her and uh, something she's passionate about. So obviously a, a logical career move for her. And as you say, Tim, the, the fact that this money is going to the Olympic Committee, I, I know Norman Venur in, in his interview with us a, a few weeks ago mentioned that in PNG there's basically rugby league and then sort of everything else is, is overshadowed. So um, not just cricket but a lot of the other sports will probably benefit from this and and 
Uh, it, it is a little bit different in terms of it's not Cricket Australia sending this money, it's the Australian government. And so uh, Cricket PNG being able to, to tap into that sort of funding being available is, is I think, a very smart move from them to get involved in um, in the Olympic Committee and, and, as you say, as part of the Pacific Games, you know, looking for other avenues of, of sponsorship or, or funding, not necessarily just from the ICC or, or from other full members. So I, I think this is a good move and, and something other boards can, can probably look to. You know, we saw Vanuatu in the final. The High Commissioner for, from Australia was talking about some projects with Cricket Vanuatu and so it, it's certainly happening in the Pacific and, and I think it's something some other cricket boards could, could look at trying to get involved with. That's all the news we have for now, but up next, Tim Brooks to discuss issues in emerging cricket and his new book. Hello, I'm Norman Vanua. I play for PNG. I am a bowling all-rounder and you're listening to the Emerging Cricket Podcast. <laughs> Well, here on the Emerging Cricket Podcast, we are once again joined by a very special guest. The author of Cricket on the Continent with a new book out a corner of every foreign field, Cricket's Journey from English Game to Global Sport. Tim Brooks, thanks for joining us on the show. No problem. Thanks for having me. The, I suppose the, the standard question that we've asked everybody so far during this new situation that we're all in, how are you coping in pandemic? How's life changed for you? Well, I'm, I must say, um, I live in a beautiful countryside in England where uh, a lot of club cricket's played. And the thing that's really struck me is that even though we haven't been able to play for this season uh, the groundsmen are still out there the grass is immaculate you now start to see people training and youth people training and it just reminds you of how important cricket is to the the vibrancy of communities and how it's how it's linked to the kind of history of villages and, and things I know it's different in certain parts of the world but so although it's been a bit depressing to not see any cricket it does really emphasise the sort of value of cricket to to communities, which sometimes you can forget about when there's so much cricket that you just fixate on one scorecard to the next and forget the sort of lives and the commitment that, that sits underneath it all. Well, just talking about uh, village cricket and um, the importance to, I guess, English culture and, and how that all sort of ties together in, in the countryside and, and the classic images of flannelled fools, um, that, that whole kind of idea. Uh, in your book, you do talk about the early history of cricket and its connection to these local communities. Um, did, do you want to sort of go through that a bit and sort of how it developed and, and how it grew out of these rural communities? Yeah, sure. I mean, it's one of the interesting things when you look at the history is that it's very difficult to have a definitive starting point for cricket because essentially there were types of ball games from which various different sports have emerged. And the same is true of you know rugby, football, American football and others as well. I think one of the things you find that um, it's quite linked into sort of parishes and parish level entertainments. So one of the things that was very interesting when I did the research was that the initial impetus for actually getting a group of people together to play cricket rather than just two boys with a bat and a ball was the fact that the laws changed around holding kind of fates in villages and when they weren't allowed to do that anymore they still wanted to have the social interaction and to meet uh, because that was so important for these local communities and therefore they turned cricket from a kind of boys pastime into a a more of a, a game for different parishes you have parish to parish matches partly just to make sure that the different communities were knitted together more in a time when obviously travel was harder people rarely went um, you know more than 20 30 miles from their from their homes it really helped all of these disparate communities link up together and cricket was quite 
quite a big factor in that way before other sports that become more popular in the modern times had taken root. So it really was, cricket was there right at the birth of the, the change from um, game to sport. As we look at the, the game to sport, and I, and I like that as well, it's, it's always something when people talk about cricket and refer to it as a game, it always sort of gives me a little bit of a shudder where I'm, I'm not trying to get too hung up on terms as we do with associate and full member and, and status, the difference between a game of which I think there's a lot of chance as opposed to a sport, which is including skill and, and intelligence, of which you've. this is your second cricket book. Uh, the first, as, as Bez mentioned, was uh, Cricket on the Continent. But can you talk a little bit about your, your background and how you've come to this, your second book, Cricket on the Continent beforehand, the work that you've done in cricket in, in the past and, and what's led you to, to getting to writing this second book? Yeah, thanks. Well, it, it all stemmed from the fact that I'm, I'm not actually um, that good a cricketer on the field. I mean, I can hold a bat and I can play. I have played a bit of village cricket. but So I had a, a lot of passion for the game, but wasn't necessarily allowed, you know, translating it into half centuries and centuries. And I also sort of at the time when I first got into cricket writing was around sort of 2004, 2005. And it's a very different uh, situation now. Uh, at that point, there was very, very few people writing about um, associate level cricket or cricket below test level. And uh, I thought there was a, a natural curiosity that cricket followers generally have around the development of the global game uh, but it wasn't given the, the the kind of scrutiny or the level of writing and uh, assessment that sort of test cricket was given and so I saw I guess I saw a bit of a need to try and address that and there were others uh, you know Rod Lyle and others that were uh, Peter Delapeno and others were you know trying to get into that at a similar sort of time and um, my aim really was to try and move the conversation from a kind of, isn't it funny that they play cricket in X, Y, and Z, to, you know, what are the reasons why they play cricket in X, Y, and Z, and how can it be developed? And how can we move from a kind of empire-based roots of the game to a truly international game? And one of the frustrations there was that I sensed in England, particularly, that cricket was sort of dipping from a mainstream sport, and football was just monopolising everything, all media coverage. So... That's really what, what the impetus for why I sort of got into writing. And then I, was, I worked for a number of websites and then started to do a bit for Wisdom. And then a chance meeting in Dubai in 2012 uh, when I was there for Wisdom and was introduced to um, QTV or Quipu TV as it was originally. Sort of a, a chance meeting really sort of got me onto the commentary side. And then I uh, did a couple of years where I was head of cricket for QTV we live streamed a lot of matches and we try, our philosophy there was not just to talk about the matches, but try and take time to talk about development themes as well. You know, how can we take a kind of marginalised sport to a more mainland, sport, a mainstream sport? And then about at that time as well, I, I started to get a bit involved with ICC Europe and started to uh, visit countries and give give advice on how they can increase their participation base and profile. So I did a bit of work in, in Greece and Spain and uh, Norway and a bit in Sweden as well. So mainly in Europe, but also Sierra Leone. I um, wrote the script for a, a documentary on Sierra Leone cricket. And part of the reason for that was I wanted to have a bit of a balance between sort of writing about the game, but also influencing it directly, which took me more down that kind of route. And then I guess once I'd done that, I um, sort of writing a book and being able to put all of the sort of disparate ideas that I might have put in my journalism and sort of coalesce it all into a into a single place and a single narrative 
uh, with the hope of sort of building that profile further. And to bring it forward to this book now, and I'm sure that given the, the situation that we're all in, um, and you have been working at the 11th hour now, just before this book has, uh, will be released. What was the intention with, with this particular book, A Corner of Every Foreign Field, on this occasion? Uh, how long has this been in the offing for? What's the preparation been like? How much research has gone into this particular book? Yeah, thanks, Dan. I think when I did Cricket on the Continent, it was a very focused book on European cricket. Uh, and to some extent, it was quite technical in places because I was trying to set out a bit of a sort of manifesto for for how you can develop the game because I wanted it not just to be an interesting read but have a bit of a legacy element. So I think as soon as I finished that, I did think about how I can take those kind of themes to a more global context uh, and talk about other countries as well. And I think one of the frustrations that I've had with general histories of cricket is they're very much seen through a test match lens. And you do tend to get that, oh, you know, so-and-so played in Vanuatu or so-and-so played in Norway, but almost as a sort of adjunct, as a sort of jokey addition uh, to these histories rather than sort of fully embedded into a, to an international, a really truly international view. So that's kind of my objective when I set out on this book. In terms of research, um, obviously I've got a lot of personal experience on the period sort of in this millennium and how the development programme was launched and its relative pros and cons and kind of where we are now I think the bit that I had to do more on but that was really really interesting was the origins of the game and I'm quite lucky uh, some of the key matches that took place in the you know 17th and 18th centuries are kind of within 10 miles of my house so I did a lot of um, really really good trips to some very picturesque grounds uh, that have a lot of uh, history of the game and I was able to see where it all started I think one of the really fascinating things about looking at the early period of the game was that they were grappling with the themes of profile. They were grappling with um, pressures that cricket faced in terms of its growth, even from its outset. So when we look back now and think about golden ages of cricket, at the time they were looking back further to what they thought was a golden age of cricket. So there's an interesting sort of philosophy about how we look at, as cricket fans, how we look at the game. We are very nostalgic and sometimes that's fun and good and sometimes it can hold us back so as as we've sort of talked about you you do cover a lot of ground in this book and having spent the uh, the weekend reading through it you go basically from the invention of cricket up right until the modern day um so it's a it's a very broad scope so what would you say the overall sort of through line or, or story that you're getting at is with, with this sort of big overview? And what are, you, what are you trying to tease out? I think one of the things I really wanted to focus on was missed opportunity. So if you look at the um, history of the game, you'll find that there's quite a few opportunities where there were real opportunities to grow the global game and make it a truly international game as we'd see, say, football. But they weren't taken and there were political reasons often why they weren't taken. So really, um, the narrative of my book, this is how cricket has developed and this is how the cultural and political background to cricket has influenced what it looks like now. But then critically, if we can understand that and understand the limitations that have been in the game and address, then we can get truly international in the future. 
So I try to leave it on a positive message about how we can learn from history in able to grow from now. Just picking up on that point of, uh, of football and, and how, I guess, um, in the early days, cricket missed some some opportunities, as you say, to really expand. I would almost sort of draw a line from, uh, you know, 100 plus years ago when a lot of these issues cricket was grappling with, you know, match fixing, uh, professionalism, other sports sort of creeping in and, and people not having time to watch cricket. You know, a lot of the stuff has sort of always been around. Where do you think cricket, you know, really went wrong in comparison to football? Because you do make the point that cricket had a lot of head start in terms of infrastructure and facilities. And we've seen a lot of clubs in numerous countries from the US to Italy that are currently sort of other sports originally started as cricket clubs. So, yeah, where do you think cricket went wrong? I think there were a couple of key decades. I think the 1880s and the 1890s are really fascinating to look at because going into 1880, cricket was the biggest sport in the world. It was the only one that had sort of formalised rules and structures and then by 1900 it had started to lose that head start and by 1909 in the creation of the ICC uh, some cricket playing countries were ruled out because they weren't in the empire so you had a sort of 25 year period where rather than consolidate and grow its roots cricket deliberately because of the politics of the time narrowed its focus and allowed other sports to branch out and take take the lead if you like and there were several aspects of that one of it was the politics of imperialism and the other was um the uh, kind of snobbishness is probably the only way to put it so if you look at uh, italy is quite an interesting example where ac milan was originally a cricket club the reason why it's now known as a football club rather than a cricket club is because they didn't allow the english people that set up the club didn't allow Italians to play, full stop. They saw it as an English game. It wasn't appropriate for the locals. And therefore, understandably, the locals all played football. And that's the element of the club that took took on. And you can see all of this as happening over a, a critical couple of decades around the turn of the 19th century. There have been opportunities since then, but that was an initial key juncture for how cricket panned out during the 20th century there was another one that i wanted to look into or i looked into and was argentina i know you spoke about italy and ac milan i know genoa as well were very similar in that regard but to look to argentina in between the wars where argentina actually had quite a lot of success in that period you know had the icc had their time again and included a, a spanish-speaking nation in the you know as part of the icc at that time who knows, you know, down the line what that would have meant for, for the growth of the sport. I think the only way we can see the potential repercussions of that is to look to, say, rugby and, and especially football, but also rugby too, where we see Argentina well and truly in, in a sport that is still conceived as rather an English empire sport, but one that it, it definitely competes in at a high level. So it's a case of what if a lot of the time. But I'm sure in, in this in this book, you you go on and, and, and talk about things like that. I know you had Cricket on the Continent, which specialised in Europe and talked about Italy. But to branch out, you know, in South America, there was really a missed opportunity, especially at that time in between the wars. Yeah, uh, they played first-class cricket in, in Argentina. A lot of the key, you know, English players went over there. There were a lot of tours. There was a lot of interest. I think when you look at it in more detail, though, um, although there were... There was first class cricket, as I said, there were certain issues that were masked. So it was only played in certain public schools. The clubs were not as inclusive as they probably should have been. And although they had a group of cricketers that came together to, to field a really good 11, they probably didn't have that outreach, as we call it in modern terms, uh, to really embed it across the culture as a whole. So what you found was that 
in Argentina as in other countries, cricket was often the major component of multi-sport country clubs. And because of the sort of social elitism that was happening, gradually the role of cricket in these clubs reduced and reduced and reduced until at some point, maybe uh, around the time of the Second World War, slightly after, uh, it got marginalised to such a degree that it wasn't able to have the profile to draw in younger generations to the game. So even in the periods where high level of cricket was played, you often found that some of the reasons for the decline were already uh, sown. You can see a similar thing with, um, you know, Philadelphian cricket, which is fascinating. Bart King, one of the best cricket players ever, but not many people know about. I talk about that in the book as well. Similar situation in in the US, the social elitism and the wish to use cricket to associate yourself with Englishness and associate yourself with sophistication, uh, but at the expense of having a broad base um, where you can get everyone to join in. I mean, the development of baseball in the US around the time of the Civil War and the impact that had on the decline of cricket is is another interesting case study there. Just looking back to the past for a minute, um, one of the, I guess, tensions that sort of emerges from the story you tell all throughout the book, you know, looking at the amateur slash gentleman kind of players versus the professionals and especially, you know, the, the mining class up in the north of England, that whole, I guess, who owns the game, that question has been a, a source of tension throughout cricket history. And, you know, you talk about the missed opportunities. A lot of the time, the people who were missing the opportunities were the ones who were trying to cling on to the the sort of elitism, snobbishness, as, as you sort of said. Um, how much do you think that sort of tension is, is still a problem in cricket? And, and, you know, what do you think cricket can do to, to try and move on from, from the echoes of the gentleman versus professional sort of uh, mentality? Yeah, I mean, I'll start off from an English lens. I mean, you know, our, our sponsor is Waitrose. You know, so people say, is, is cricket a middle class sport? And you're, you've got Waitrose on your shirt. The fancy grocery store. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think what you find is there's an interesting shift. I talk quite a lot in the book. One of the, the themes that runs through the 20th century is the balance of power between England and India. And there's some critical junctures in that. And I think the class element has changed a bit in recent decades because of that shift from a an English sport to maybe more an Indian holding the power. And I think that's kind of shifted that historic snobbishness a little bit. But you find uh, everywhere you go, really, you find that people love playing cricket, yes, but they also love what cricket reflects, how it reflects on them, which is linked again to that kind of feeling of being quite gentlemanly, the ethos of the game, the spirit of cricket. I mean, how often do people talk about the spirit of cricket? <laughs> how, you know, man cads, all of this. It's quite difficult to define. But actually, what you'll find is it's really, really important to people who play and watch cricket, the spirit of cricket, even though it's a bit indefinable. So I think it is shifting a bit because of the balance of power. Money and profit is influencing that a bit as well. But I think it's, it would be very hard to argue that cricket was as accessible a game as football. And, you know, if you want to look at why football uh, has so much dominance across the world, you know, it's, it's not rocket science. There's a lot of nuance around it. Uh, but cricket has a harder job, as do rugby, as do other sports as well. And we have to really fully understand all that in order to grow the game from where it is now. Has it been ignored, though, in, in the research and the people you've spoken to? Because you talk about the, it's called a British 
and cricket snobbiness and how the game power centres have, have, have changed? Have we just replaced one level of snobbishness and a lack of access and restricting access to another version of it? That's something that gets me thinking and, and you know, why was the game taken up in certain countries within within the empire and, and, and others not? And, and what can we learn from that? And also looking at other places, we've talked about Argentina and talked about the USA and also the colonial politics in a place like the West Indies. What, what can cricket learn out of this? Yeah, so there's quite a lot in all of that. Um, that's the rub, I suppose you'd say. Um, <laughs> mm. I think if you look at, I mean, one way of looking at it is if you look at a one of the development models for cricket is that the British went across the world because of their empire and therefore they took cricket with them and which of those countries so there's a whole long list of those and you'll find scorecards played a whole way across the world of those countries where did it take root when the british maybe left uh, and what were the factors in that so i think india is really fascinating on this because obviously there was a lot of cricket played in india there was a big british presence there and therefore the infrastructure was there but then one of the interesting things was it was taken on by the indian princes and therefore although it might have been viewed as a an English game initially, because it had the backing of influential Indian rulers, it started to become an Indian sport as well. And therefore the masses could associate. Uh, whereas in other countries, uh, that didn't happen. It was very much seen quite narrowly focused as an English game. And then therefore it didn't take root amongst the masses. And therefore it's a minority game now. Has that been a key factor of having the ruling classes involved? I sort of think of the game growing in Oman. I wouldn't call the the board there the ruling classes, but a very powerful industrialist. But we've seen the game grow there through the bloody-mindedness of passionate people in a country. Is that that what it takes? Yeah, I mean, I guess the Indian example is a historic example. I mean, Oman's... Oman's an interesting one. It's got a, a good climate for cricket. I mean, let's not forget that. It's quite difficult to play cricket in, in certain parts of the world. I mean, if you just look at Nepal, I mean, it, it sounds a bit of a joke, but the availability of flat land for grounds is a genuine issue in Nepal. Well, Hong Kong as well, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah exactly, yeah. Um, so I think in, in Oman, that example, passion is definitely key. And, and I, people should not underestimate the amount of passion that people have. In, in cricket's hinterlands it's amazing the selflessness and the hours people put in to make sure that cricket survives i mean that in itself is an inspirational story the trick is translating the passion into uh, a sustainable growth plan if you like quite often you'll find that um, cricket in a certain countries is doing really well and then it might take just one person leaving the country returning to another country or switching their focus to another sport and you can get a lot of progress is halted just through one person and i think the difference between success and failure can be very very narrow margins and that makes cricket very vulnerable beyond its uh, test nations particularly when the amount of icc support and the amount of icc funding has decreased uh, a lot of countries are sort of out there on their own with less support than they used to have and i think the the way that um, cricket boards need to see that is give themselves more stability by embedding themselves more in communities and getting more endorsement from uh, and backing from sort of local governments and other organisations in that country. So, for example, national sporting bodies. I'm going to ask one of my uh, trademark short questions with a very long answer. So how does cricket do that? How does cricket embed itself in communities where it, it may be seen as a, as a foreign sport or a game played by foreigners? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of us have written about that over recent decades and there's probably not a magic solution to it. I mean, one of the things we looked at in Norway was trying to not spread yourself too thinly. I think this is one of cricket's challenges. So what what we talked about was that um, in Oslo, there was quite there were 58 clubs or teams uh, when I was looking at it five years ago or so. 
And what we wanted to do is create hubs in other Norwegian cities. And we developed a plan where we tried to get a sort of multi-organisation partnership together to articulate the benefits of cricket to that town in terms of the economy, health, education, all of those things. Then bring the, the clubs together as well and the decision makers and the financial backers all into a sort of partnership model where you can then um, create a cricket hub that from its very outset has got backing from all of the people it needs to to have a sustainable future that hasn't happened yet unfortunately I hope hopefully they're still developing those kind of plans um, but I think that kind of model has a better chance of success than just a few people setting up, to, up a club and, and hoping for the best so in terms of of associate cricket now and, and looking to the future you know there are a few issues getting in the way in the development of the game and a lot of them are actually self-inflicted the idea of the scorecard system and and we've heard stories from um, specific boards in, in parts of the world who have used, you know, ICC funding, you know, not exactly in the most positive way for the entirety of the country, you know, not to name any any particular names. How important is it, you know, for all these associate members with the cut of funding that they get and, and we're looking to the future now and there's a potential that a lot of this funding will be, you know, cut again, given the, you know, the financial model that will be put in place in the future post-COVID. Things like scorecards and things like that. What do you think are the biggest hurdles now for associate members in the future? Because it looks like it's going to be even more desperate at times for a cut of funding. And if, you know, if that means, you know, some sinister actions in regards to scorecards and, and nominating how many players someone has and how many, say, pitches are put in place, how many turf wickets, how many artificial wickets in, you know, to get in the queue for ICC funding... Are we going to have challenges down the line where, you know, where people are potentially cooking their books in order to try and get ahead? I think that's 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 possibly happened historically as well. Um, it's the nature of the beast to some extent when you link funding to specific um, criteria. You've always got the, the risk of that, of course. I think one of the big issues in the uh, early 2000s was this issue of return on investment. It wasn't talked about much in the cricket press. Um, but if you think about it, if you're the ICC and you're suddenly putting a lot of money, which is board's money, remember, largely, uh, into um, development, you're going to want to see a return on investment. And the criteria for return on investment wasn't really stated. So they wanted uh, a boost in number of members and there was a race to 100 members quite rapidly. There was um, the, a million participants outside you know, test countries. There was a, a couple of high level targets but they weren't really clear on what they expected from that investment and i think it's not that surprising when you think about it in a sort of corporate way that the icc after several years of this we're starting to think about okay well what have we actually got for our money there how sustainable is cricket in these places can cricket in these countries turn from a recipient of funding to an actual revenue generator in itself I think um, within that, there was an over-reliance of quite a few members and possibly some complacency amongst some as well, that they would always get this money from the ICC and that they would be able to continue cricket in that way. I think they had a bit of a shot when the tides turned and the emphasis became more on having a sustainable financial uh, plan looking beyond ICC revenue uh, to include you know, how attractive is the cricket in the country to sponsors, uh, what are their links like to national sporting organisations and local governments and to try and diversify their funding streams from the ICC. And I think some countries did that quite well and other countries um, were a bit tunnel vision and kind of refused to um, accept that challenge. And I think the latter category have got a lot of problems now because they haven't done that investment. 
into relationship building. And the ones that have done the relationship building are starting to see the fruits a bit more. So it was a bit of a shock, I think, for the members. There was a culture change. I think some have been a, a bit slow to understand what the realities of kind of modern cricket, cricket economics are and um, where the ICC see themselves too. You, you talked about the um, the rapid expansion in the sort of early to mid-2000s and, yeah, a race to, to 100 members. One of the key players in that development drive was Bob Woolmer and, and he did a lot of work. I think he was the ICC's first uh, head of development and, and he did a lot of work with um, setting up the World Cricket League and Intercontinental Cup and, and a lot of those programs that are so well received and, and have borne fruit in, in terms of a lot of very competitive cricket over the years. Uh, so maybe just talk to us a bit more about Bob Woolmer's uh, role in the ICC because he, he certainly had a big influence on the game. I think the key thing that Bob Woolmer did is that he looked beyond the very narrow rationale that the ICC had, which to put it bluntly was that associate teams wouldn't embarrass themselves in front of the sponsors and media partners at the World Cup. You know, that was a big driver for putting money into development. I think Bob Woolmer was a visionary man and he looked beyond that to the longer term. So if you look at the creation of the Intercontinental Cup, for example, which obviously sadly has fallen off the radar now, but that's not, that wasn't a revenue generator and it it wasn't directly linked to how countries performed at the World Cup. What it was, was uh, an appreciation that in order to improve techniques and competitiveness and individual player skill, associate countries needed access to longer format cricket. Rod Lyle himself has been a, a massive advocate of the Intercontinental Cup over the years uh, for those kind of reasons as well. You know, So that wasn't a purely commercial, commercially driven decision by Bob. And I think that's where his kind of genius was, to be able to see what all of the different criteria would be to get sustainable growth in these countries and then have enough passion and persuasion to sort of navigate that through a very financially minded uh, ICC governance structure. Um, yeah, and, and just on that point about, you know, looking a bit more towards the long term and, and rather than taking a short term view, you know, we, we talked a bit about the World Cricket League and, and the Intercontinental Cup and I guess the, the lower level structures in general. Uh, Tim mentioned that the 2015 T20 World Cup qualifier made the ICC money and and you know that's one of the things that I, I often think is that a lot of these games are really badly marketed and you know as, as um, and this is something that the, the book sort of alludes to as well is you know attention is starting to shift to franchise cricket and you know part of the appeal of that is is the immediate um, narrative and context of a, of a league and a tournament and so as you know a, a lot of the time bilateral games aren't really seen as having a lot of meaning you know these lower level games with all this context and you know promotion relegation everything's on the line we talk about this all the time on the podcast but you know that that's why i guess emerging cricket is so exciting do you think the icc's you know missed a trick a bit in in terms of not being able to use that product as, as a way of marketing their their game which is you know international cricket yes i think so i think what you find with tournaments like world cricket league is uh, it's a visibility thing it's got limited visibility uh amongst cricket fans overall i think once people discover it they love it i mean how many people you know how many more bloggers do you have now than 10 years ago on associate cricket much more people writing about it more content in magazines i think the women's game has helped with that as well which we haven't talked as much about so i think that context is is really key and i think the rationale for uh, you know the new structures is is good i think they should open up odi status a bit more to help with that as they have with t20is and then what you find in the sort of ICC narrative is that I think they appreciate that there's an issue with context of constant bilateral series. And I think post-COVID that will be looked at again. Maybe it was the kind of shock we needed to 
think about that as a game. And then there's, there's the rhetoric around icon series. So, you know, the Ashes, for example, has its own cultural, historical resonance, maybe to India, Pakistan, obviously, Australia, New Zealand, uh, but some less so. How do you build and market the distinctiveness of each of those bilateral series without them becoming just another fixture? And also, how do you make sure that the proliferation of games is slightly controlled so that you retain the quality? Because I, I guess you could see it two ways as a cricket fan. You can access all kinds of matches. I mean, how many matches can you access as a cricket fan now? in a combination of TV, internet, a whole host of matches. Uh, but how do you know how to navigate all of that? You know, is there a risk of overexposure and people getting a bit jaded by it and a bit bored by it? You know, so I think they're all factors to think about in terms of the balance between making sure that the game can generate the revenue in order to improve and develop, but also uh, retain that kind of u- uniqueness and interest and context for each match. For all the macro... Uh, issues that we have talked about in the book and you know the issues regarding associate cricket in general one of the the points you made just before is talking about cricket being a team sport but played in in an individual environment and one of the the quirky things about cricket is that there are so many individuals from all over the world who who leave their mark on the game and and looking at some of the people that you talk about in the book from an individual perspective, you know, guys like Carl Postuma, Felix Mendel, Frederick Firstlev as well. I don't want you to give too much away because obviously, you know, people, you know, going out to to buy the book, but what are some of these characters like, you know, what was it like digging, you know, digging up um, stories about these guys? How important is it to have these, these individuals around, you know, promoting the game, almost being flag bearers for the, for the game in their part of the world? Yeah, it's unbelievably important. I mean, it's it's um, the role of individuals has been so pivotal in the development of cricket, particularly beyond it, its test nations. And it's very difficult to overstate their impact. I mean, if you look at uh, Postuma, for example, uh, there's a great picture of him in the team photo alongside W.G. Grace when he played for London County in 1901, I think it was. And you have to realise what the impact of that is on you know the Dutch cricket community at the time. That one of their own could go on and, and play with such a, a legend of the game and play, you know, at first class level really is an inspiration for others to follow. So that's, you know, the case with Postuma and there's been some other examples of that. Uh, if you look at, you know, Lamichani for Nepal, you know, how important is that for young boys coming through Nepal to, to see one of their own have such success in global leagues? Uh, county players that came from the Netherlands and Denmark in the, you know, the 70s and 80s and blazed a bit of a trail there. And there are, you know, more opportunities for that kind of thing with the franchise leagues across the world. There are more opportunities for that. I think others... Um, the thing that's really, really inspiring when you research it is the devotion to, you know, excel and succeed despite all of the constraints. Because let's be honest with ourselves, it isn't easy to establish a cricket culture in, uh, you know, virgin territory. You, you have so many opportunities to fail, if you like, and it takes someone very dedicated and very passionate to um, sort of navigate their way through that and inspire others to have a sort of sustainable cricket base. So I think, um, you know, Frederick Furslev, for example, just his determination to keep cricket going in the war in Denmark, uh, despite, you know, the risk of going to a concentration camp and being caught, it's, it's unbelievable, really. And that's what cricket inspires. That's the level of devotion that cricket inspires in people. And I think that's why, even though there are so many reasons why cricket can fail, that's what gives you hope, that because it inspires that level of devotion, that cricket will somehow find a way through. And if you can reach enough people, the basics that cricket can offer people is so inspiring 
that people will try and play wherever and whenever they can, despite all of the constraints they face. Now, a question that we ask every guest on the show, and I'll give you a little bit of time to to think about this one, but the question that we ask all of our guests on here is that if you could change one law in the game of cricket, what would it be and why? I'll give you a couple of moments to think about that. It's maybe a slightly broad interpretation of the question, but I think what what I'd really love is a more transparent process uh, for countries to become... uh, full member status because that's been a very murky territory for a long time yeah. as i say warren Dutron personally went through that in trying to get test status for ireland kind of forced icc's hand a bit but it's still there's a lot of subjectivity in it and i think you need to be able to show people how they can uh, reach their dreams so that they can put the effort in to be able to attain it so i think that would be my answer is is a more transparent uh, methodical process for moving through the membership categories Okay, and then if it could change, you know, it had to change an on-field law, what would it be? Mm, that's a good one. Um, maybe given this history of the game and uh, how much the LBW rule keeps keeps coming in, maybe you should try and uh, level the playing field a bit for uh, bowlers on uh, batting-friendly tracks by uh, removing the um, foot outside the line of off for LBWs. Give the bowlers a bit more, perhaps, on a flat track. Tim's not going to disagree with that. <laughs> Absolutely not. Some of those arm balls coming in, that was the only thing that saved them. You know, <laughs> that, even if the bat was behind the pad, he's not playing a shot. No, I, I like it. Exactly. They're playing the I, shot issue, yeah. I, I, was, I was a little bit uh, concerned you were going to say about the ball pitching outside the, the, the leg stump, but I think that would bring a lot of negative play in terms of coming around the wicket and firing in at the, uh, at the leg stump. And I, I know they use the example of uh, Jimmy Anderson versus uh, Steve Smith under lights in Adelaide and about swinging and pitching. But I think the one outside the line of the off stump, I think that, well, you'd, you'd have a lot of batters arguing that they, they don't want that. But I don't, in terms of people enjoying the game of cricket and trying to explain it, I think that's one, uh, one little, bit of bit of cricket that would make it easy to explain to people coming to the game fantastic to have you on tim brooks it's been probably a long time coming as someone who's helped out with the emerging cricket movement contributing to our site on, on a handful of occasions the book of course a corner of every foreign field cricket's journey from english game to global sport where can people purchase this uh, around the world i'm sure it will be a little bit tricky given the circumstances but i'm sure it'll be available just about worldwide Thanks, Dan. Yeah, so it's out on the 20th of July in paperback and ebook. It's uh, It'll be available on online platforms across um, different countries and uh, I think in, in, in bookshops in the UK. Hopefully uh, people find it an interesting uh, story. I think what I've tried to do is put a slightly different slant on, on the history of the game. And my, my aim with it really is to provoke thought and provoke debate that can then um, help shape the future. So I don't, I don't want it to be a, just a kind of inert history that stays on the shelf. I'm, I'm hoping that it generates some debate and uh, some development goals and thinking can come, come out of it. I should say that uh, if people are interested in talking about the book, there is a Meet the Author event that's being arranged by Pitch, the publisher, on the 10th of August. And people can keep an eye out on that and, and ask me some questions of your own. Brilliant to hear. Uh, hopefully everyone can get out to that Uh, in August. But for now, Tim Brooks, thanks so much for joining us on the Emerging Cricket Podcast. Thanks, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Special thanks again to Tim Brooks for joining us on the show. And thank you guys for tuning in as well. On behalf of Tim Cutler, Nick Skinner and myself, Daniel Beswick, enjoy the rest of your day wherever you are around the Emerging Cricket world.